Okay, um, we thank you for all that she is and for the tremendous preaching gift you've given her. And as she just opens your word now, would you open our hearts and minds to uh, hear so deeply from you this evening? Amen. Amen. Right, so page one, it should really be called the page opposite 1116, for those of you who are eagle-eyed and notice there's no page numbers. Uh, but the scripture I've been given to share with you this evening is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. I'll give you a few moments to find the page opposite 1116. Um, Russell, Russell, Russell. And let's pray before... I read this out. Lord, some of us here today have known you our whole lives. Some of us barely know you at all. Some of us aren't sure whether you're there or not. But Lord, do what you can only do in these next few moments. And by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, take these words printed on paper. Make them the living word applied to our heart. Take the words that I've prepared and divide them however many ways of our hearts are in the room that we may be people who sit under your word, who are transformed by your word, and who are made ever more like the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and for whose glory we live. Amen. So Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Wow. When I was given this passage to preach on some people say, if you're going to preach on a passage like this, they go, oh, wow, that's a great passage to have for a sermon. I take a slightly different view because there is absolutely nothing I can say in the next 25 minutes that are going to be better than that. I mean, seriously. Wow. Let's just spend a moment thinking about that. Because sometimes, and especially if you've been in church for a while, some of the words I've just spoken, I've just read from the scriptures, become really blasé. We throw them around, we take them for granted, and every so often we need to stop, and we need to pause, and we need to let them saturate our soul, and turn our brain to macaroni. That's a technical theological term, by the way. As we contemplate, what does it mean 
that the very image of the invisible God became man, hung on a cross, died, rose again, and is the same one that we sang to, we pray to, that when we've had those moments where we've encountered the Lord, that is the one who is encountering us. And every so often it does us good to stop and to pause and to think and go, wow. And that's basically what we're going to do this evening. We're going to read through this passage actually a few times because, as I said, there are no words that I have that can possibly do better than that. And that's not just my high theology of scripture, though I have a very high theology of scripture. But it's actually, what does it mean to allow the word of God to sink deep into our spirits, to permeate our souls? And then as we walk out of this place, our perceptions are changed because we know the facts. How often have you got into a situation where if you had known a few other facts, your mind would have been completely changed as to what the outcome might be? I've done that a few times in life. There was one time I went in for a job interview and I thought I was a total outlier. And it turned out that it had all been a stitch up from the inside and I was the preferred candidate. My goodness, what, how different would have been my, my whole posture going into that job interview? How much thankful my friends would have been if I hadn't bored them absolutely witless in the day beforehand with my, oh, I don't know, I don't know, will they like me? The facts change our perceptions. And we allow these facts about the eternal Son of God to sink and renew our spirit and change our spirit and change the way we walk. I was asked to give you a little bit of an intro into Colossians. And I was asked to give you some specifics about dates and place of writing and the people it would have been sent to and what Colossae was like. And the honest answer to all those questions is no one really knows. There's an awful lot of debate as to when Colossians was written. In fact, some people say that Colossians was like a rough draft of Ephesians. I, I kind of read them side by side. I sort of see that kind of idea. If it wasn't for the fact that they were both written by Paul, who is a preacher, and if anyone here, and I say this is a preacher, I've got to fess up to this one. Although I have never knowingly preached exactly the same sermon twice, there might be some common themes that come through in my preaching. So, you know, maybe it wasn't a rough draft after all. Colossae itself was a city of faded glory. It had been very, very prominent in that area. It became completely obscure. Apparently, to this day, no one has actually tried excavating it. Apparently, though there seems to be even debate about that. There is a lot of argument as to whether Colossae was actually important or not. Like, geopolitically important, I mean. Obviously, it was quite important to the people who lived there um, at the time that Paul wrote to them. And the fact that there's a debate says volumes, doesn't it? This is a place that the fact that you can argue about whether it was important or not indicates that it probably wasn't top of the priority list. So, Colossians. It's a letter that we don't know much about in that case, but we do know that it is from a real person to a bunch of real people. At this point, the people who invited me to preach this evening going, we're hoping for something more profound than that. But again, just like sometimes the doctrine of the incarnation, sometimes we lose sight when we come to the epistles of how we read them. We forget that they were letters that were written by someone to someone else. And that 
God, in his providence and in his grace and in his mercy, took human words from one person to another, infused them with the presence and the power of his spirit, and it becomes God's word to us. Let's take a moment to marvel at that, shall we? That human words from one person to another bunch of people, God can take those words, he can inspire those words, and they can be from someone who murdered his people. This is St. Paul we're talking about to a bunch of people that we now know virtually nothing about. And God, by his grace, almost 2,000 years later, we're sat in a church in London, and we're saying, this is God speaking powerfully to us now. What does that say about our God? What does that say about the God we worship? What do we say about the God we pray to? What does that say about the God who reached into your life and your situation and touched your heart? It says an awful lot, doesn't it? We need to marvel at the things that sometimes we take for granted so much in our lives. And while I'm just on the how to read an epistles rant, and just please bear with me because we'll come to Colossians in a second. These were written as letters. We've established that. The best way to read a letter is to read it from start to finish. Obviously. And then you can delve into it deeply. Sometimes in our Christian lives, and I put my hands up for doing this as much as anyone else, we can read the epistles like we're neurotically reading a text message from someone we really fancy. And we're trying to like pass individual words. What does that mean? What exactly does see you later mean? What does hope to see you soon mean? I mean, what's that really mean? And, and we kind of delve into these details and we forget that it belongs to a whole. And so if I can set you some homework this week, am I allowed to set homework? Sit down and read the letter in one sitting, start to finish. In fact, you know what, do it every day. It will take you less than four minutes. And get the overview while we're diving into the detail and we're looking at it. Because that gives you the framework. It was a letter that would have been stood up and they just would have read it to this church. And while we're there, let's turn the fact that we know very little about the Colossians to our advantage this evening. Because we can't really other them this evening. We can't kind of put them in a nice little time in a box and talk all about their circumstance and situation and say that's what God was saying to them there. Because we actually don't know that much about it. But do you know what? Those people who were sat in that church in Colossae hearing this letter for the first time are our brothers and sisters whom we will stand beside in eternity. We'll get to know their names. We'll hunt them out and find them. Well, maybe, if you're like me. Um, we've got eternity. We've got a lot of things on our to-do list. And let's not forget that their human experience is probably actually not that much different to ours. Okay, life might have looked very different, but these people, they had relationships. They had children. They had parents. They had jobs. They had finances. They had a culture around them that thought they were weird for being Christian. Sometimes when we come to the New Testament, especially the epistles, we can make the people who originally received these letters a little bit other. And we distance them. And we distance those words. Let's, for this evening, try standing alongside them in a little foretaste of eternity, shall we? So, as I said, we're going to go through this, a little bit of a fine-tooth comb, so have the Bibles open, follow them through, and we will have some fun and hopefully allow the Lord to percolate our our hearts with his word. Percolate our hearts with his word, percolate his word into our hearts. That's it. One of the quirks of Bible translation 
is that every single one of the little nice italicized headings that you see above your paragraphs, they were all inserted by a translator. The paragraph splits, they were inserted by a translator. The verse numberings, uh, they were put in in sort of the medieval period basically to make translating the Bible easier. So all of these things are slightly arbitrary divisions and slightly artificial divisions. And sometimes we can, it doesn't affect this passage too much, but other parts of the Bible, sometimes we can skew passages by not minding the gap. So rule number one, always mind the gap. But if we look just a couple of verses earlier, verse 13, it says, he, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything that follows from verse 15 onwards that describes the beloved son is about a beloved son. He is beloved from all eternity. The triune relationship of love carries through all eternity. Have you ever thought that God cannot be love unless he is Trinity in all eternity? Have you ever thought about that one? You see, God doesn't change, right? Some nods, some foundational ideas of the nature of God. God is love. Are we all in agreement with God is love? Are we all in agreement God doesn't change, right? You can't love just if you're all by yourself, right? That, that's not love. That's narcissism. God is love in all eternity. The fact that God exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all eternity means there is always a perfect triune relationship of love that goes from before the world began, before the universe was created. God just is. I am who I am, he says to Moses. Present tense. I am being. I just am. And he is love in all eternity. And that love relationship between the Father and the Son has persisted from all eternity from before the foundations of the earth was laid. I'm going to assume something about some people's Bible knowledge here. Don't worry if you don't know what I'm talking about. But when Jesus goes to be baptized at the River Jordan, and he goes to see John, and Jesus is baptized, and he comes back out of the water, and the Bible says the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased the son whom I love. You see, we've got to remember when we're talking about this Jesus, we're talking about the son whom the father loves. Sometimes we can kind of get our idea around God loves us, but the idea of the love in the relationship of the Trinity, then when we come to things like the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, la, 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 we, we kind of adds a whole other dy you know, dynamic to this equation. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, so that's everything that's dark and nasty, into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he is the image of the invisible of God, the firstborn over all creation. In Hebrews 1, it puts it like this. In the last day, in, the, in, the, in former times, God spoke to us through his prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation of his being and the very radiance of his glory. I love that, the very radiance of his glory. Jesus, the beloved son, beloved through all eternity, who hung on that cross for us, he is the exact radiance of the father's glory. He is his eternal eternal and perfect image. He is the image of the invisible God. He is firstborn 
over all creation. Sometimes the firstborn thing kind of ties us in knots. We go, what do you mean? Was there a time when he wasn't? Have you ever had that argument with a Jehovah's Witness? Ah, okay. You need to go argue with some Jehovah's Witnesses more often. Um, Prototokos, firstborn. It means not just you came first, like, chronologically, but it means you're first in terms of importance as well. So you're eminent over all creation. You came before all creation. And that is a very, very Hebraic turn of phrase and a very, very Hebraic turn of thought that means eternity. Um, when you look at Old Testament Hebrew, I know this was written in Greek, but Paul was a Jew. He was a strict Jew. He was versed in this kind of cultural idea. And they had two words for eternity, and one was from the beginning, and the other was to the end of time. And so sometimes in bits of the Old Testament, you get them back to back, and then you know they really mean eternity. But it's talking about the eternity of the Son. For by him all things were created, verse 16, and all things were created through him and for him. It's an interesting one. We can sort of do all things created by him, all things created through him. What's the difference between by and through? Oh, that could be an interesting argument. But all things were created for him. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. And all things, do you know the Greek word for all here? Do you know what that means in English? All. Everything. There's no secret Gnostic code to this language here. All means everything. That includes you. You were created for him. Have you ever thought of that? For him, for his glory, for his pleasure, for his love, for his purposes, for his plans. He didn't just kind of create you and go, well, that's, that's nice. He created you for himself. St. Augustine, the great early church theologian, said, we are created for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're created for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless before they find their hope in you. You were created for him, for his glory, the beloved son who is from all eternity, who is so far from being a creature that he is the creator. So far from being a creature that he is the creator. I'd love it if that was my line. It was not. It's a guy called Matthew Henry. But Jesus is so far from being a creature, a product of being created, that he is the creator. And he is the head of the body, the church. We're coming back to that in a moment. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead and in everything preeminent. That's verse 18. You see, hang on a second. Let's press pause. If Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, if he exists before anything else is created, he is in all eternity, okay? There is never a time when, when the son is not the son. If he's the firstborn there, how can he also be firstborn from among the dead? Am I the only person that asks that question? Because we take the Son who exists from all eternity, who is glorious in the heavens, who speaks the world into being. All things were created by him, through him, for him. In him, all things hold together. Yeah, you've seen those words stare back at you from the page. And yet he is also the firstborn from among the dead because he is the one 
to in that great, great hymn from Philippians. Emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, became obedient even to death on the cross, therefore God exalted him. You've got this beautiful moment in that text where the firstborn over all creation, the one who is ruler, the one who is Lord, the one who is God, ends up hanging naked on a cross. In fact, that kind of got the loincloth to protect his modesty. He didn't have that in real life. Um, And, as we know, the cross isn't the end of the story. He rose gloriously from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead, and he's the firstborn from the dead because he humbled himself in being found in appearance of a man. All of those stories of Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph, and I'm going to be a total spoiler here, there is no stable, there is no donkey, uh, possibly not an inn, it's maybe the guest room, that's where the word's translated everywhere else. Sorry, have I just been like the Grinch that stole Christmas? But there is a manger, there is a manger. But the one who casts the stars into space, the one who speaks creation for being God, the one for whom everything was created, by whom everything was created, for his glory, comes and walks among us, dwells among us, and becomes the firstborn from the dead. Let's take a moment to marvel at the incarnation, that the firstborn over all creation is also the firstborn from among the dead. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, if you think about that, your brain will turn to macaroni. Do it. It will be good for you. Um, And through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have been reconciled. But not just reconciled. We've been presented holy and blameless my translation here says, an above reproach before him. One of my favorite passages of the scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, you are a new creation. And it goes on to say, for God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, that we might be found the righteousness of God. That beautiful divine exchange takes place as the one who is the firstborn over all creation becomes sin for us and becomes the firstborn from among the dead. You see this beautiful thread that goes through the beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, for he is the image of the invisible God. So given all this, how does this change our lives? (laughs) Because sometimes it's really nice to think about these things and sometimes it's great to think about these things as abstract things and hopefully the way we've looked at these in the past few minutes have maybe you've got that little needling where you're thinking gosh there's something going on in my heart there's something that's going on in my head that maybe the Lord is speaking to me about something in here because Jesus this Jesus the one who is supreme over all creation the one who is supreme over all redemption the one who is supreme in love the one who is supreme in holiness he is also the head of the body the church that's us folks That was the Colossians who heard this. The brothers and sisters were going to stand in all eternity with. And we can talk a fair bit about theology. One of my former colleagues at the church I was previously serving in, he liked to talk about doctrine on fire. 
doctrinal fire changes our hearts and our minds and our lives. When we know those facts, that changes the way we walk our Christian lives. When we know who our Lord is, saying Jesus is Lord, I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world to say, isn't it? This Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from among the dead. When I say, dear Jesus, help me find a parking space. This is the one I'm talking to. When I go to him with my sin, when I go to him with my failure, he is the one who will present me blameless before the Father, beyond reproach. That fact changes my perception when I run to him. Not, I don't hide from him in shame for my sin, but I run to him in confidence for his grace. You know, that, 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 that fact changes our perception. When we have got that situation, that circumstance in our lives and our families, we don't know what to do about it. Doesn't it change the facts on the ground when we know who we're praying to about this? Because he is the one that actually created you for him. You have a purpose. You are here for him. And when we say Jesus is Lord, my goodness, that suddenly becomes a much harder sentence to say when we realize what we really mean by Lord. Because he is supreme. You see, if you are a Christian, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. Even if you're not a Christian, you're created by, for, and through Christ, whether you know it or not. And when we come to think about questions about Jesus being the supreme Lord of all, we have to think about this on a macro level of our lives, not just a micro level. So for some of us here this evening, there's certain things in our lives that we know are not right before the Lordship of Christ. And we know that we need to deal with them. And trust me, you can't cast out what needs to be discipled, but equally you can't disciple what needs to be cast out. Okay, often, I say this as a mad charismatic, it's really, really tempting to want to kind of pray it away. Sometimes it needs to be discipled, there needs to be some discipline in our lives. So sometimes there's the micro thing, but actually the macro thing, how does the whole way I walk through life, how is that transformed by understanding something of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus? And I'm actually going to let the Holy Spirit work that question in you, because that's actually a shockingly rubber hits the road question. We've gone on a bit of a roller coaster ride these past 25 minutes. It's felt like a roller coaster for me. So it felt like 25 minutes to you. <laughs> Let's stand in his presence and know that as we stand, we're standing in the throne room of the one who is the firstborn over all creation. The one who sees you, has known you, and has called you by name. He is the one in whom all things hold together and yet tonight he is holding your life and your heart and the hearts of those that you love the most in his hands. And he is your suffering saviour hanging on that cross and he is your risen and triumphant Lord ascended in glory. Let's stand in his presence. Lord, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, speak to your people. Reveal the glory of Jesus to us. Expand our hearts and our minds. Give us a new view.
vision of him as Lord. And transform us in the beauty of his presence. It's a warm God, isn't it? Let's just continue to to wait on him in the quiet. Actually to let the huge richness and depth of that truth that you were made him to sink in to change you afresh to conform you to his likeness anew Spirit, we thank you. You're so present in this place. That you reveal the richness of who you are. 